Hi, and welcome to Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses. We believe that the biggest questions we face in this world aren't religious, and they aren't scientific. They're human. So our mission is to explore some of the biggest and most important questions we face, and to talk in depth with some of the brightest and most insightful thinkers on topics ranging from the origins of the universe, to political psychology, to the way in which technology is changing who we are. You can find all of these episodes and guests and much more at sinaiandsynapses.org. And if you'd like to join us live for these conversations, you can go to jewishlive.org slash sacred science for an updated slate of guests. We hope you find these conversations enlightening, thought-provoking, and most of all, inspiring, as you get to hear an incredible diversity of thought and expertise to glean wisdom from both religion and science. Hi, and welcome to the second episode of Sacred Science, Gleaning Wisdom from Science and Religion. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rabbi Jeff Middleman, founding director of Sinai and Synapses, which bridges the worlds of religion and science. How do we draw a distinction between living and non-living things? Is that a biology question, a chemistry question, a physics question, or is that a philosophical and religious question? Those deep existential queries inspired Dr. Jeremy England to write his book, Every Life is on Fire, How Thermodynamics Explains the Origins of Living Things, and our guest on this episode. And what's particularly striking is that each chapter illuminates these questions through the stories of Moses, like the Nile turning into blood or his staff turning into a serpent. We had a fascinating conversation on the relationship between traditional Judaism and modern science, far beyond the simplistic takes we often see on both sides. Dr. Jeremy Englund has a PhD in physics from Stanford University and was a professor of physics at MIT and is now an adjunct professor at Georgia Tech University, as well as working at GlaxoSmithKline, focusing on artificial intelligence and machine learning. He's also an ordained Orthodox rabbi. This conversation was recorded on December 15, 2020, on the sixth night of Hanukkah, meaning that Jews were lighting their Hanukkiyot, bringing heat and light to one of the darkest times of the year. And so, Jeremy, I'm thrilled to be sitting with you here today. Thank you for taking some time. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about your book in a couple of minutes, but I think I'm, I'm really interested of hearing your story and your journey, because I think it's it's relatively unusual to be uh, an expert in, in biology, an expert in, in biophysics, and also to be an ordained rabbi, and, and particularly an ordained Orthodox rabbi. So I would love to hear a little bit about how you think about and approach these kinds of questions, because there's a perception in America right now that religion and science are in total opposition to each other, you can't hold them, or there's a little sort of a separation of I, I hold one on six days a week and on Shabbat, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a religious person, but you really bring those together in a, in a very interesting kind of way. So I'd, I'd love to hear just a little bit about how you think about and approach those kinds of questions. Sure. So I, I guess I could comment briefly to begin with about how I ended up in this situation or, or position of being so intensely interested in both things, um, which may help me ultimately explain a little bit about how I think about it. So I grew up uh, in a home that, where I was conscious 
of having a Jewish identity, but not one where religion or, or Judaism or keeping the Torah, studying uh, the text of the tradition were something that was strongly emphasized. And so I got a bit of exposure to, I don't know, uh, Hebrew letters, a, a little bit of exposure uh, to what was in the Torah. And then, you know, by the time I was kind of reaching adulthood, it was something where it was in the background of my personal identity, but not really something that I think I thought of as making a big difference in an explicit sense to how I lived my life or how I acted in the world. And at the same time, at that same age, I was also very intensely growing up as a scientist. I had decided I was really interested in science. I was studying it a lot um, before college and university and uh, beyond. And, and I think that what happened was I already had gotten really, uh, and I don't, I don't mean this in a bad way, but put through the ringer or, or you know, gone through uh, or run the gauntlet or however you want to put it, um, developing as a, as a young scientist before I really encountered the Torah as a, a subject one could relate to as an adult and really dig deeply into. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of details to the particular, um, you know, story that one can tell there. I think one notable thing I should mention, um, especially given recent events, is that I, I started reading while I was studying as a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford after college, um, the writings of uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, whose passing saddened all recently, uh, uh, saddened us all recently. And um, I, I was just struck for the first time uh, at, at how intellectually deep you could be while on the one hand understanding the sort of philosophy and categories of Western thought, um, but on the, other, on the other hand also kind of being willing to step to the side of that and say, here's a different perspective. Here's how you understand the Jewish tradition in light of those, those ways of thinking. And so it was that, it was reading other people like uh, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, it was visiting Israel and, and falling in love with uh, the Jewish people and um, our land and our tradition for the first time um, really intensely in my life. And doing all of that while at the same time feeling like, but I've already really learned a lot of science and I don't think that all of this is wrong and I don't think I, I want to just jettison who I was beforehand. So I think I, I, I had a certain point where maybe I was in my early 20s where I just decided, okay, I'm not going to budge an inch in compromising how I understand what makes sense about science or, or what's valuable about it, but I'm going to give a lot of runway to understanding Torah and what it has to contribute to my understanding of the world and see where that takes me and, and, and insist on not budging you know, or compromising a bit on how much kind of authority I invest that with. Like I made a decision that I, I cared about um, the Jewish tradition and I wanted to really give it a chance to make sense and even kind of put it, you know, at the foundation or try to do that. Um, and I think there was many years of just kind of finding things that seemed kind of contradictory or, or, or struggling with that here and there. Um, and uh, what I think I ultimately have concluded, and I can expand on this in a second, but I, what I think I ultimately concluded is that perceived conflicts between what people let's say, you know, between science and biblical religion or science and Torah or however you want to put it, it usually results on either side of that line of scrimmage. It results from people, in a sense, sharing the same faulty premise about what kind of truth they should be looking for in a given place. So there's, there's kind of a, a shared misunderstanding of what science is and what it can tell you about the world, and also a shared misunderstanding 
of the proper way to relate to Torah and what you can expect it uh, to teach you. What is it trying to do? What's the sort of proper use for which it was created? Uh, and, and I think that, in a sense, whether you're talking about someone standing on one or another side of that line, they agree about that confusion and then agree that they have this insoluble conflict that they have to resolve. So, um, uh, or, or that they have to, you know, fight on and un unresolvably forever. So that's, that's just kind of hinting at how I think about this, but I, I've been talking a lot, so I'll, I'll pause, but um, that's kind of how I ended up in this particular position. Well, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of the conversation about science and religion either is this this misperception of um, where, you know, where truth comes from. And then if you pick one kind of truth, you've got to reject the other kind of truth. And they mm -hmm. they have different kinds of jobs. And and and, you know, I, I sometimes say you know, that, that the Torah is not designed to be a science textbook, right? It's not designed yeah. to be. Um, an understanding of the of 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 the Big Bang cosmology, right? They didn't have the tools to be yeah. able to do that. It's not a phone book either, right? There's a lot of things that you could use books for um, if they have a certain purpose for, for which it wasn't designed uh, by its creator. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's a a fundamental point one has to start with. Um, the thing I'd add on top of that is that I think what does if we have to, if we want to admit, you know. We, we don't want to make it sound too easy to say, yeah, it's 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 a, a peculiar thing that people think that there's a conflict, but really there's none, and one can't even understand why. You know, where would the, someone even get that idea? I think the reason that's a little too pat or or, or, or facile is that the the Torah is, in a sense, trying to tweak your nose about this question, and, and one has to admit that, right? That it because it's not presenting itself as there are many ways of talking about the world. Here's one, you can pick some other ones as well. It's trying to put itself forward as kind of the foundation. It, it, it suggests itself as the foundation of a whole ideology and way of looking at the world. Um, and, and doesn't, it seems like it's not willing to accept other standards on equal footing at some level. And it also talks about the world in a way that's not scientific, but does engage in some of the same activities that it seems like scientists sometimes are engaging in, like trying to cast a glance backward and figure out what happened in the past or talking about the different things there are in the world um, or, or talking about ways of forecasting the future. You know, there, there are these things that science does that it seems on the surface that the language of the, of the Hebrew prophets is, is engaging in a similar activity. So I think it does take effort to pick apart a little bit more how you, you square all of this, but yeah. Yeah, because I think that's, I mean, you bring this up in your book too, which is the question of origins is not just a scientific question. It is a deep existential philosophical question. And I think yeah. one reason that there, there, I think there is on, on some level, conflict is not the right word, but, um, but for a lot of people who, for example, reject Big Bang cosmology or or evolutionary theory, I don't think it's because they misunderstand the science, but it's because the way that it's often presented, it's that that it, if there's a randomness to to the way that all the molecules come together or the way Darwinian evolution comes, if there's randomness, that means that there is no purpose, which means there is no meaning, which means there is no God, and that mm -hmm. right it becomes very hard and if and if you're saying well wait a second i've got a relationship with my creator um my community supports me in this kind of way i i don't want to get to this point so i'm going to just i i'm not even going to engage in this first question because th there is 
there is some conflict because it is asking this question of who are we, where do we come from, what is our origin, and there are claims that are made um, both scientifically and religiously about that. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that I think there's also this kind of uh, halo or, or penumbra of cultural attitudes about religion that pervade the broad scientific community, not to the exclusion of, of other attitudes, but are certainly very common, especially, you know, amongst some of the most famous scientists at elite institutions, that gives one the sense that if you want to kind of buy into this thing, that you're going to have to give up on some other things, because there are people going around declaring that, you know, religious attitudes are misguided or, or you know, self-deluding or, or, or what have you. Um, and I, I think that the way that I would start to try to chart a way through this, which came out of kind of trying to crawl my way out of that jungle when I first decided, okay, I'm going to kind of hold on to both of things, these things and see where it takes me, um, is that I, I think that what's really helpful is to understand, to, to assume, first of all, because I think it's hard to find this unless you assume it, but, but it's very rewarding to, to start digging for it, to assume that the Torah knows what you know and more. Um, and in particular, that it knows what science is and it knows what it is to reason about science. And I don't even mean necessarily that you get so much mileage out of trying to say, I assume that it knows that the four bases of DNA are this, this, and this. You know, I, I have no, um, I, I don't have a horse in, 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 in that race in, in some sense. Like, I, I don't think that that's getting to that level of detail and trying to line up things in the Torah with science in that way. Usually doesn't end very productively, uh, or at least has to be done very delicately. And so we can talk in due course about why that might be. But I, I think that to say that it knows what it is to look at the world, to think of it as a predictable, natural fabric, and, and the rules for that predictability were sort of uh, laid down by someone or wrought by someone, and then to try to reason about the world in order to figure out what about it is predictable. That's a thing that the Torah does know what that is. That's a, that's a part of the human condition. And I think that we are now so inured to the science-religion debate that we tend not to sort of step back and think, well, what is the science really? And, and if we do that enough, I think we realize that there's a huge amount of science kind of with a lowercase s that just has to go into being a human being who navigates the world. Um, or for that matter, especially someone who's trying to keep the Torah, right? Because the Torah assumes that you have accurate predictions you can make about your future based on how the world seems to work and then enjoins upon you obligations that cause you to have to navigate that predictability in a certain way. For example, you're not supposed to say, okay, I need to have wine for Kiddush this Friday night um, because it's going to be Shabbat. I don't have any wine now. So if a Baruch wants to make a miracle for me, I'll get wine somehow. I don't need to find out how one gets wine. I don't, I don't need grapes. I don't... The truth is there's a process by which wine is created and there's a chokhmah, a wisdom to how to turn the world into wine or pieces of the world into, into wine. And if you don't apply that chokhmah, if you don't apply that wisdom, you're generally not going to get what you expect. Now, there's this sort of extra comment at the edges of that, which is that you shouldn't ever get too certain that you know what's impossible because likely is not the same thing as, as certain. And so there is this, this radically uh, counter kind of element to the, the message of the Torah, which is that a Kadosh Baruch Hu 
identifies himself as I will be which I will be you know that until the, the future happens you shouldn't assume you know what it is and and he decides what it is and and that's his message to you and you have to kind of stay ready for it and not assume that it's already kind of in his hands are tied in some way um, but that being said you are responsible for making people safer by looking at the world through the lens of science or just doing fulfilling your obligations by 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 assuming the world has scientizable predictability to it um and that's a part of being an Oved Hashem a part of serving Hashem according to the Torah is is relating to the world in that way so at the very least not talking about electrons and you know big bang cosmology or whatever there there, there is at the very least an understanding that you can find i think pretty easily pretty easily in the text that scientific reasoning is a thing that we use to understand the world and that we have to use uh, and need to know about. And I think you can go deeper than that, but I think that's the starting point, is understanding that it doesn't misunderstand anything that you know about the world that's true. It's a lot of it's a lot of if then, right? There's all of all of you know Devarim. It's like if if this happens, then this happens. And and I, you know, there's been a lot of um a lot of work. And I think I think you actually um talk about this in a piece that's on our website about climate change, which is a lot of Devarim um, has been used to talk about climate change. And, and there's a recognition that if, if we act in this kind of way, this is likely to happen in, in the, in, in the world, right? If we, if, if, if we are poisoning the air and poisoning the water, this, then we're going to reap those, those consequences as, you know, Deuteronomy says, if you do this, then you're going to be blessed with rain, that there is a, there is a recognition that, um, that if you assume X is going to happen, then Y is likely to, to be the consequence there. And that's not a supernatural element. That's the way the world works right now. Yeah, although I, I would make distinction in the sense that I think there, there, there are people who might go as far as saying, yes, there is a, I don't know if you'd call it a science, but there's kind of a, a predictability to how the world works that the Torah tells us about. But some people would say, but we would have no way of knowing that if the Torah didn't tell us that, because it's not scientizable. It's not something that science would tell us. Science doesn't tell us that if you have lots of idolatry and murder in your land, that you will stop having rain, right? Or it's not obvious what the connection is between those two things. Um, and and I, I don't want to make it sound like the the, the when, when we read Shema and, and, and the Torah is telling us something that sounds sort of like it's saying that, that it's somehow claiming either magically or in a, in a way we haven't yet understood about meteorology, that there's a direct connection between right. these things. I think it's a more complicated discussion there on that point. But but I think, I, I would say maybe I'm talking about, uh, about something a little bit different. So you mentioned that this piece that I wrote a while ago uh, looking at uh, Yosef, who's, who we're reading about right now in, in recent and current parashiot in the Torah readings every week um, on Shabbat. So Yosef is the son of Yaakov. He goes down to, to Mitzrayim as a slave, down to Egypt as a slave, and he ends up being this, uh, I don't know, people would call him you know, vizier or prime minister or um, second in command um, uh, in, in the court of Paro because he's this interpreter of dreams. And we sometimes relate to that as, as being about um, magic or sort of fortune telling or, or things that we, we we maybe accept within the premise of the narrative of, of the Torah because, you know, supernatural things seem to be able to happen there, but where it's hard to know, you know, how do you take that into a world that has a seemingly scientizable fabric of predictability and make sense of it? And I've tried to argue that Yosef 
can also be understood himself as a scientist, that he's not really reasoning or, or talking about the world the way a prophet talks about the world. He's saying to Paro, look, the world is made a certain way by God, and because it's made this way, there are predictable things. Um, and in a sense, because we can predict something about the world that others can't predict in the commodities market, we can buy low and sell high. And that can both be an efficiency that maybe saves lives and prevents famine. And it also ultimately enriches Paro and makes him you know, a god king and he enslaves everyone. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. But I think you know, the, the important thing uh, to, to notice in that uh, is that the Torah is on the one hand admitting, it understands and, and I think you can pull this out of the text carefully, and I've tried to write this elsewhere, but it understands what it is to realize there are things about nature that are predictable, but it doesn't want to just say, here's the thing about nature that's predictable. Go do with that what you like. Here's some chokhmah. Here's some wisdom about, you know, here's instructions for how to make a nuclear bomb. Use it for good. Use it for evil. You decide. You know, that that's not what it's about. What it's trying to do is it's trying to say, okay, let's look at this scenario. Let's suppose someone claims they can save humanity from this looming natural disaster, right? What's the proper attitude to have in the face of such a disaster? And I think that Yosef's story is a complex one because on the one end, he sounds like the hero because he's really smart and he seems to just kind of save people through kind of hedge fund slash, you know, meteorological prediction or whatever he's doing. He figures out economically, politically, scientifically how to handle things. But the end result is mass slavery for most of Egyptian society. Um, and that's because there was no uh, ultimate recognition that our, our success or failure also has to do with our moral success or failure. You know, that, that, that if we um, are, are getting to, to eat or starving, that we shouldn't just be thinking about the rain or we shouldn't just be thinking about where the food is stored. We also should be thinking, as happens in, in Sefer Yonah, in, in the book of Yonah much later, about national repentance and about our relationship to a creator of the world who believes in justice and um, uh, loving kindness and expects us to pursue those things in our lives. So Yosef, you know, he he is the extreme example of if you just perform a, a technical solution to a problem, you end up just being you know, an enabler for Paro to say, I am the king of the universe. I control nature. If you trust me, I will eliminate the unpredictability from the world and you can eat, but you have to worship me. Uh, and, and that is a danger that's inherent in science, not just with respect to the, the, you know, the current version of that kind of story where I think climate change sometimes ends up paralleling that dynamic uh, in, in the, the sort of political uh, emanations from that whole discussion, which is something I talked about in that piece. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's also you know, not just about that one issue, it's about science in general. Science is so powerful just as a means to do things uh, that we, we are in, enough in awe of it that we start to think maybe we should ask it what we should do. And that is the, the essence of the danger that the Torah is trying to make inseparable from its discussion of what scientific reasoning is in that narrative. Well, and, and that, you know, that leads nicely because I'd love to, to talk a little more about your book because one thing that you, that you push back against very accurately is, is scientific reductionism, right? Like if we understand something on the big side, just, okay, we can get it down to the, the small molecular atomic level. Now we'll understand everything. And you're like, no, it's much more complicated than that. Um, would love to just 
have you share a little bit about your book and 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 the theories that you've been uh, propounding, which is you know it's it's a two hundred page book, so right. so here's five minutes on it, yeah, but standing uh, on one leg, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, yeah, no, I, I I love to. So I, I think um, perhaps the place to start there would, would would just be to say that I quite separate from uh, my my interest in, in in studying Torah, I have sort of, so to speak, a day job of being a scientist and trying to figure out things about the world and how they work, um, and had been working for, for quite a few years on various aspects of theoretical biophysics, and my research drew me in the direction of starting to think about how you get matter that is not lifelike in any notable way to start behaving more that way. Like, what are the conditions under which you see things that life does um, like making copies of itself, like harvesting sources of energy, like food from its surroundings, like predicting things that are predictable about its surrounding environment and behaving in ways that reflect an accurate understanding of, of you know, what's predictable about that world. There are things living things do like that, uh, that you don't expect to see from a rock or, you know, a table or, or things that we say are very clearly not alive. And so you can start as a physicist to think about those different kinds of behaviors and say, what are the conditions where these are possible? What are the conditions where these behaviors might emerge? How do you, you know, control that? How do you do experiments where you can make predictions and um, understand better what those phenomena are like? And I think that that's, it's very different than saying, let me come up with a theory that sounds like I, I've turned a camera on what something looked like billions of years ago, and here's exactly what it looked like. It's more like a proof of principle for how these different behaviors come together and, and how they can arise in a condition where you don't have to worry about chicken and egg yet. Uh, and you can start with sort of, you know, like dust of the earth, sort of inanimate material. Um, but as long as certain basic physical conditions hold, you can get very interesting emergent lifelike complexity. So that, that was just, what my research uh, while I was at MIT and, and where it's carried me since um, uh, w was about. And then I, I got to the point of thinking about, I'd like to write a book about this to you know, tell people a broader audience about these ideas because they're interesting. And I think I, I felt so conscious of the fact that this is not just a discussion about science, um, as Robin Middleman was referring to before, that when you start to say, all right, what is life or what are, what are living things? What makes a living thing different than a non-living thing? Where do living things come from? You can't help but strike chords with other parts of, of people and, and what they're curious about or what they long to know or, or long to find some kind of meaning or clarity in uh, because we are alive uh, and we, we care very much about where we come from. And so I didn't want to seem naive and sort of say, oh, I'm just going to put some technical comments out there for consideration. I mean, I can do that in scientific papers and you know, that is really where the research gets published and, you know, argued about and, and vetted by a community of experts. And obviously that's an essential part of the process. Um, but when putting it out for, for broader discussion, it seemed important uh, to bring a broader commentary in. Uh, and, and the natural way for me to do that was to say, okay, if I have these ideas about the physics, maybe I should go and look and see if the Torah has something to say about it so that I can understand better, you know, how I should put a wrapping around this that gives it a broader context. Uh, and I was very gratified to find when I started looking that there was a very particular place uh, in the Torah, in Sefer Shemot, in the book of Exodus, when um, when Moshe is first encountering HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when Moses is first encountering God at the burning bush, uh, 
where it suddenly seemed like this was a moment where particular features of that narrative had quite diametrical correspondence to some of the ideas that I was trying to teach about um, in a book and that they were almost, they, they helped to teach about the physics because they were relatable. They had to do with talismans of kind of tangible con conceptual things um, that, that people relate to in everyday life. And so it both started to seem to be like, I can probably teach the physics better if I, you know, combine these ideas. And also I will write the book in a way where no one will be able to mistake the fact that I, I see that this discussion is situated in a broader context that goes beyond the sort of expert and technical realm of what scientists can comment about. Um, and, and, and so what I did was I wrote every chapter based on a theme taken from this moment in Exodus. So there's a staff that turns into a serpent. That's one of the signs that's given to Moses. Uh, there's the burning bush itself. Uh, there's the uh, water of the Nile on the dry ground that turns into blood. So these are different elements where each one of them can be unpacked, if you like, to start showing you something about the physics that you're talking about. And then, because they're all actually in one way or another about the boundary between life and non-life. You think about it, like a staff is not alive, a serpent is alive. Blood is part of life or the essence of life and mud is not. So one of these examples or another, they're all about crossing that boundary and they contain contemplations that you can pull out of the text uh, that I think end up, I, I hope, enriching the discussion and ultimately helping the book to land on a kind of zooming out that happens where, you know, we talk almost exclusively about physics for the whole book. And then at the end, it's sort of, so where does this leave us? Are we just a quintessence of dust? You know, is, is physics saying that life and non-life are not meaningfully distinguishable and we shouldn't care and there's no moral meaning? Or can we say something else? And can we learn from the Torah how to talk about it? And and what's what's interesting, and, and we had a little conversation beforehand um, of the the distinction between life and non-life is not as clear as we think it is. Or they, and you talk about this, there there's somewhere, okay, these are things that are clearly alive, and there's some things that are clearly not alive, but what happens in that in that muzzy area? And and I think this is something that comes up all the time in Jewish law and in the in the Talmud of trying to um draw a distinction. I, one line that I like to say is that ritual helps us turn the analog into the digital. Right, my, my five-year-old right now, it's Hanukkah right now. He wants to know when are we going to light the candles? When is it dark? And yeah. it's, and you can't always, you, know, you, you look at it and like, well, how do you know this was light and now it's dark? Well, we need to have something like 5, 13 PM. That's where it is. And ritual yeah. has the same thing of becoming an adult. And, and you talk about this, about life and death and sara'at of, of what's actually, you know, the part of your body that's living and, and dying. And, and that seems to, to match also nicely of this question of how do we determine what's alive and what's not alive and how do we even make that distinction? Yeah, well, I think that probably the deepest impression in that discussion that ever was first made on me was reading Halachic Man by uh, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, where, because he was, was someone who had, I think, a quite profound understanding of some of the philosophical questions raised by modern physics in the early 20th century, and also obviously was this genius, you know, product of the, the brisker uh, tradition of Talmudic study. And he could combine those two things uh, when talking about this. And so I, I remember he discusses at some point in the book the idea of the dimensions and, and other properties necessary to make a, a mikveh suitable for use for immersion. Um, and, and, and talking about it in the same way that really a physicist 
comes to the world and, and says, all right, I have my procedures of measurement. I'm going to hold this stick up next to something and say, okay, it's 2.5 meters or, or what have you, that you need to start with agreed upon protocols and procedures for assessment of the full fabric of the world. Um, and then once you have those procedures, you can start building a theoretical frame around them and start saying, how are these numbers that I measure here related to these numbers? And, and, and so I think, you know, uh, Ruf Soloveitchik, and, and also, um, I don't know if I, I guess I can say contemporary philosophers at the time like Wittgenstein, there are people who I think have been very thoughtful about this and pointing out something that I think a lot of scientists or people who are educated in science are not always focused on, which is that measurements are things people do, that numbers are not there floating in some invisible world that we haven't touched. And then we make measuring devices which are kind of magical uh, transponders that reach out into that world of numbers and pull back the correct number. Measuring devices are human constructions and all measurements and all attributions of numbers to the world are the result of procedures that we agree upon for what is a fair way of calling out a number in, in, in a certain situation. And that is something where I think it's easier to appreciate when you lay physics alongside halakha, alongside Jewish law, because in both cases, you have this need to say, how do we decide if this sukkah is kasher or if this mikvah is, is suitable for, for use for tefillah, for immersion, um, and all the different decisions you have to make like that. But there are different decisions than physical ones because physics tries to be very internally referential. It's saying, I just want to know, I'm going to measure these things, I'm going to measure these other things. Can I make theories of how different measurements are predictably related to each other that are not obvious, you know, so that even though I measured x y and z over here i can predict in a completely different setting some other things that can happen that i would measure that's very different in, in, in halakha because in halakha we're as you're referring to also interested in just how we should then act once we make certain measurements mm -hmm. right that once i've determined that i can accomplish a certain mitzvah in this setting because of the measurements or observations that i made um then i act differently uh, and and so I, this is something I think that gets taken up in the last chapter of the book, looking at the example of tzara'at, because tzara'at is sometimes mistranslated as leprosy. It's one of the signs given to Moshe uh, when he's at the burning bush. It's sort of this ambiguity in the boundary of a living thing. It's a disruption in one's skin, which is your actual physical boundary. And it both connotes the boundary between life and non-life, and also kind of the mixing of different things. I think if you think about the concept of tum'ah, which we, we often translate as impurity um, in the Torah. It's, it's about the intermixing of different kinds of living things. Like maybe you've intermixed with something that was not alive, or maybe you've intermixed with another person besides yourself, or all these things that that, that are connected to tum'ah kind of work that way. And so tzara'at, which, which produces tum'ah, is, is this kind of ambiguity or, or intermixing. Um, and, and, and I think that one of the things that it's so hard to relate to in the present day is that it is not a dermatological phenomenon at all. You cannot say, okay, so we had this, this Torah word for it, um, but what is, if I go to a dermatologist today, what, what is tzara'at actually? What do we call it? The problem with that is that tzara'at is defined on purpose in Jewish law to, to live in a different conceptual space. It can only be identified by a kohen, for example, by a priest, which means it is not objective. It is, it is by definition something that only exists sort of as an assessment made by a subset of people who have the right and designation in order to make that assessment. Um, and, it, and it also has, has 
some legal properties that make it impossible to talk about in terminological terms. For example, if tzarat that starts in one place and the body spreads to cover the entire body, then you don't have tzarat anymore because now your whole body is, is something different. And and the mixed upness was kind of the problem seemingly in, in, the, in the legal concept there. So I, I think that what's so important there is that Alakha reveals to us that legal constructions are a more flexible conceptual space than maybe the typical ones we're using in, in our, our discussion of predictable relationships between materials or biological systems. And that's okay. And, and that's part of the meaning that we can find in the world if we share procedures for how we act in the world. Um, and and that's, that's not really different than saying you can be murdered or you can be divorced or all these other things that have a social dimension to them that you can't remove. Right. And there's, and there's, and the, and the distinction between, and I don't want to say it this way, but I will sort of between natural facts versus social facts and social facts are very real, right? Those, they, they have, they have an import and, you know, we're thinking about the, the presidential election that we're dealing with and, you know, what, you know, and, and, and conversations about what is, what is reality that, that, that social facts do have often a, a moral import and they, um, they imply that that here's what the, the sort of the natural fact is, and that's going to then change how we should be responding to that, and that's what what the implications are going to be. Yeah, and and I, I think that I mean this is probably trying to make too grand a claim without much substantiation about I don't know the history of Western thought for the last however many thousands of years, but it seems to me, speaking loosely, that um, perhaps part of the reason that now there is so much perceived conflict between what we call science and religion, whether within context of Jewish discussions or broader ones, obviously, you know, in Western society, it's a majority Christian society, and, you know, there have been other contributions to that conflict as well. Um, I think part of the origin of that may go back to the intermixing of Greek and Judaic thought that sort of happened at the beginning of Christianity, uh, because I don't, I don't think that Chazal, that the sages of the Talmud, really would find what people usually treat as the sticking points or the hard puzzles of how to relate you know, science and religion and get them to, to play along together. I, I don't think that they would have encountered the same kinds of difficulty necessarily because in their approach, they're, they're clearly so disposed to talking about procedure and, and that, that this is about, you know, we, we arrive at different kinds of truths by having different kinds of procedures and ways that we act after we've made certain assessments and come to certain agreements and made judgments, and then we go and, and conform our behavior in certain respects. Um, and I think it's hard to generalize about all Greek philosophy, but there was a, a very strong strain of Greek thought that really made its way deeply, I think, into Christianity and medieval Christian philosophy, such that it eventually influenced even you know um, medieval Jewish philosophy, Islamic philosophy, whatever, um, where there's much more of this notion of ontological truth, right? That there are freestanding truths about the world that our wisdom can access and then that we can discover and figure out. Uh, but it's not about our procedures. Our procedures are these sort of imperfect things that we're always straining to perfect or improve. And if we ever improve or, or perfect them enough, then we'll finally get the real truth of what actually is. And I think the more you tend to, to reason about the world in that way, um, the, the more confusing things get uh, when you try to square things with how 
the Jewish tradition sometimes insists on talking about the world, uh, you know, because it just can't encompass all these situations. I mean, there are, especially in, in Jewish law, there are very clear examples of this where, you know, you have like this concept of the idea that two different people should act as though the world has the different set of facts true about it because they each insist on those separate facts and then they should keep the law according to the facts that they insist on. So you resolve a disagreement about the facts of what happened, not by saying, let's get to the bottom of this and find out which one is actually true, but you end up saying, okay, you go do this thing because you claim A, and so a legal consequence of A is that such and such is forbidden to you, and you can go do B because it's permitted to you because you insist on a separate set of facts. And, and so we don't have to resolve the disagreement about the facts in order to find a resolution of procedure. Um, and I, I think that that kind of flexibility and, and I view, in my view, sophistication uh, in understanding the role of people in making different statements and judgments about the world that they only partly perceive and comprehend uh, is really something that it's hard to get Greek philosophy to play nice with. Um, and so I think once that comes through into the religion science debate, where you have kind of post-Christian Greek philosophy influenced science talking about what science is, it, it creates more of a sense of things being at loggerheads than they really need to be. And, you know, there's one of my favorite lines from, from uh, Psalms, which is, which is, and it's quoted in, in a midrash also of saying truth uh, springs up from the earth, which mm -hmm. is very different than the truth coming down from heaven. The mm -hmm. truth comes from the bottom up from our lived experiences that we, we can argue about it. That also truth comes from the earth. And you can even talk about this from a scientific perspective of nature is going to tell us if we're, we're correct or not, right? Like we can have whatever wonderful theories are there, but if the natural world is saying something's different then then then, then we're the ones who are wrong. And, and, you know, there's a, a line that I love, I think it's from, from um, Stuart Firestein, who's at Columbia, um, who said that science's job is to help us become progressively less wrong. And, um, and there's always sort of a provisional truth that if we can find out, here's what we know at this point, here's what we don't know, and here's what the open questions are. So holding truth with a capital T coming down from up on high, as is often viewed in, in Greek philosophy, I think isn't, isn't, um, direct contradiction to the way that I think a lot of science works and I think the way that Judaism looks at, at the world and the way that we look at facts and truth. Yeah, that, that's another thing I would, I would agree with is that really doing the work of science when you're engaged in it uh, in a day-to-day in a -day sense, if you admit to yourself what you're doing and what, what you're going to be able to claim or what you're going to be able to discover, it really is more honest, I think, and realistic to admit at the outset that all the laws of physics and all the scientific theories and whatever that we can prove more or less correct, they're actually kind of, uh, they're, they're definitely human constructions and they are uh, always only going to be approximately correct. But more, more importantly, they're always kind of limiting projections of the whole picture of things. So I could take a black and white photograph of a rainbow and I get a lot of information about the scene that I'm capturing with that representation, but then I have to accept that I've eliminated the possibility of, of perceiving certain things about what I'm assessing by my procedure or my choice of representation. And I think sometimes scientists culturally don't want to admit to themselves that everything that they're doing, every model they make, every theory that they're constructing really 
imposes that kind of sacrifice on them, that they don't get to talk in one set of terms about their subject uh, and capture everything that might be true about it. And, and you know, sometimes I think it's more obvious that that's true where you say, oh, well, I'm only going to measure one thing in the system and there's a whole lot else going on, but, you know, forget about it. Like, I think economists have to admit this to themselves much more readily because they can measure, measure so little. And it's obviously true that what's going on in the world is more than just like a number of dollars changing hands or something. And I think maybe fundamental physicists who are looking at, you know, high energy particles smashing into each other, whatever, it's easier to maybe feel like, well, this might really be the full picture of everything. Um, and, and I think one has to make that argument carefully, but I think you, I think you can argue against that view, even in that case, and say, look, these are human constructions. We've developed ways of talking about what we observe and measure in the world that are very successful and help us to make predictions. But the moment we start saying, the thing that I have constructed to represent the world, whether in words or in images or whatever, is a replacement, a, total, a totalizing description for all that the world is. That is the essence of, of, of idolatry, right? That's what we're being... Uh, cautioned against by every other verse in the, in the Torah, basically, that we have to remember that the, the constructions of our own hands or of our own words or of our own minds are just that. And that doesn't mean they're useless or that they don't carry us somewhere. But the moment we start to kind of say that everything is, is you know, uh, has to bow to this one principle or one idea, uh, we're, we're going down a very slippery slope in the wrong direction. I want to open this up. There, there, there are questions. They can come in uh, through the through the chat. I want to ask Ashley um, a more personal question, which is that you you know you talk about wanting to frame your book and and some of the chapters in the lang language of of uh, of the Torah and and from excerpts from Shemot. And I'm curious as to what the reaction to that has been, because you might assume that there's a lot of pushback of oh my God, he's trying to say that the Torah is, is literally science or, you know, there, or there may be some people like, you know, I hadn't even thought of it like that before. That's really helpful. I'm curious because it's, it, it was such an interesting choice. And I think it's very helpful because you also talk about that the Torah talks in human terms and questions of subatomic particles and the origins of the universe are at scales that we humans can't really conceive of. So the language of the Torah is very human centered. I'm curious as to what the reaction has been, uh, uh, you know, quoting Shmote and, and Hebrew Bible and, and being a person who, who has a, a, a connection to, to religion. Yeah, well, I, I think in general, I've been very happy with the reaction. I, I think that, um, as you might expect, there's been different kinds of reactions. Um, and some of them are, are, are perhaps you know, predictably kind of stridently opposed or sort of rubbed the wrong way, at, at least by this kind of an approach. Um, and, and I think that um, a significant percentage of those are pretty dismissive, you know, before really getting into the meat of it, in the sense that I think for some people, just the idea that you should talk simultaneously about science and also ideas that come from what is called religion, that that's just, these two things should not be put together. If they haven't put together, it's by definition, toxic, you shouldn't touch it, you shouldn't engage. And so I think, I, I, I know I lose some people off the bat immediately. Um, and uh, who, who would have might, you know, who might have been very enthusiastic readers of a book about the physics, if I had been willing to limit myself to that. Um, 
And, and so, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, there also are other people who may have more uh, serious and careful arguments to make against doing this, which I think is always, you know, important to, to hear and consider. Um, uh, and, and I do think, you know, it, it needs to be said, there are ways of talking about science and Torah at the same time that I think can be not so successful, either in terms of relating the right way to the Torah or uh, uh, of, you know, doing science properly. Because I think that science is a way of reasoning about the world. It's, it's really about figuring out consequences of certain assumptions if you apply certain kinds of logic to it, and then that helps you get certain kinds of predictive power. And if you start kind of injecting little, you know, alternative choices that you make in your logic because you have a kind of a conclusion you're trying to get to because it's a story that you like, or if you um, uh, kind of uh, stop being very empirical about the world and, and, and try to think more about what, what your religious text is telling you the world should be and, and, and try to wall yourself off from empirical realities that you, you need to face, you're not going to do science very well. And so I think in general, it's not a good idea to start from the Torah and be like, let me go look for my next scientific project by just thumbing to a random page and saying, okay, how can I make lots of oil from a little bit of oil or something like that, right? That's, that's unlikely to be a very you know, successful um, enterprise. Although there's, a, there's kind of a bonus feature there about Hanukkah that we could circle back to that's, that's kind of fun, um, uh, uh, which I think is, is maybe a point worth making. But uh, at the same time, I think it's also not going to be treating the Torah in the right way if you start kind of either trying to use science to prove it correct, because it's not supposed to be related to as a, you know, testable hypothesis. It's supposed to be related to as more like I, I make a covenant where I choose this to be my procedure for making sense of the world and, and everything else flows from there. So it's upside down to kind of be trying to find out if the Torah is correct by looking to see if science says it is. Um, and, and not only that, I think it's also not the use that the text was you know, produced for to kind of say, how can I learn about DNA or electrons from it or, or, or what have you? Um, so there's a lot of ways of trying to mix these things together that I think are, are, are misguided for one reason or another. But all that being said, you know, what I've tried to do, and I, I, I hope has been somewhat successful, is show an example of how you can be careful in how you treat each of these kinds of subjects intellectually in a way where they can benefit from each other. And what I will say, getting back to your original question, is there have been a lot of people, I think, who have had very gratifying and positive reactions to that, because I think they do have this feeling that the uh, very narrow and even hostile kind of attitude that you sometimes get from people, let's say, in the scientific-minded frame about whether we can talk about things in other terms um, it just feels too limiting to them. They, they can tell there's, in a sense, it's a black and white picture and that, that we've lost something in our representation of the world that way. Um, and I think also there are people uh, coming, you know, uh, from uh, the standpoint of Torah who are really hungry for uh, something that seems not to compromise on the science in order to get to some kind of happy ending in terms of resolution of that um, a discussion. So, yeah, I, I think overall I've been, I've been very gratified and encouraged by the reaction. I think what's, what's also interesting is that, and we've noticed this a lot through, through, through our work at Tana and Synapses, which is that in a lot of the, the Christian world, it's how do you get 
Christians to be excited about science and accept science. And in a lot of the Jewish world, at least in, in, in the more liberal branches of Judaism, the challenge is not getting Jews excited about science. It's about getting Jews excited about Judaism. <laughs> and, and there's a, a pushback of saying, well, wait a second, I accept Big Bang cosmology and Darwinian evolution. So the Torah is all a bunch of Bronze Age myths. Let me not even engage with that, and, and, and particularly for people who who you know their their Jewish education for a variety for whatever reason doesn't go farther than usually seventh grade. Um, right. Being able to understand a much more nuanced way of how does Judaism explore these kinds of questions? How can we look at the at the text and the Torah in a way that takes it seriously, but not literally, right? Like, how can we engage in it in a way that that it can speak to us without it necessarily saying, this is my literal truth and I'm going to put everything into this little bucket right here? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's very important. And and really, in some senses, is a rehabilitation uh, of what seems to me to be a very authentic and ancient way of reading the Torah that you, know, you get if you're just reading Chazal, if you're reading the sages of the Talmud, um, I don't think this would be a foreign way of approaching it to them, um, but but more sort of the way that they demonstrate by example is is, is the most enriching. You know that you get the most out of it, um, and and it's it's obviously still you know different because it's thousands of years ago and it's it's a different um, style or approach than what you get from contemporary people today. But I definitely think that there's there's something we can learn. Think of it as sort of a, a revival movement in some sense, um, rather than, than than thinking that the most authentic and traditional way of reading Torah is one that has this big chip on its shoulder about science. I think that really is a much more recent thing that really has to do with, you know, the the, the uh, particular history of the onset of modernity in Europe and in other places um, and. And how sometimes that that you know it, it seemed like there was this package deal where you had to kind of give up on keeping the Torah and also give up on believing that it had things to tell you that were true about the world and the way it, it works. Uh, so it's really about I think rehabilitating you know the ability to read the Torah in the language in which it's written. You know, and what is it saying when it says the world was made in seven days? Uh, what could it possibly be trying to teach you? by saying that, instead of assuming it's being written in the language that Isaac Newton wrote Principia in, mm -hmm. and then saying, well, now that seems to be false because I have to pick one. Right. Well, and, 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 you, know, and, and you referenced this a little bit at the, at the beginning, and this is a question that just came up, which was that um, the way that you look at Judaism and science is, is really, it's fascinating. And this person wants to know, is it helpful? you achieve what you couldn't do when you first saw yourself as a scientist, you know, when you were, you were talking about how you came to approach both of these kinds of questions. Um, does your view on Judaism impact the way that you, that you see yourself as a scientist? Yeah, I, I'd say definitely. I mean, on the one hand, like I was saying earlier, I think one has to be very careful procedurally not to do science as though it's, uh, I, I'm not, I don't have to do science anymore. I can just, kind of make my living as a scientist by giving divrei Torah that happened to reveal scientific truths or something like that. I, I, because I don't think that's kind of the, the use case for which the Torah was built. Um, and it kind of sort of is using the Torah as a shovel to dig with. And, it, you know, there's a lot of things that are, are problematic about relating to it that way. That being said, I do think that reading the Torah carefully and assuming it has something to teach me that's true about what the world is and how it works 
it, it forces discipline on how one understands what science is that then leads to, in certainly in my experience, and I think in general, better clarity about how to do science right. So the example that I can point to in my own life is that I think that when reading about the work of creation, you know, the, the, the six plus one days um, that you get at the beginning of the Torah, when I was in grad school, you know, right at the point where I was starting to say, all right, I, I am a scientist. I'm not going to throw that out the window. However, let me read the Torah and assume that it's teaching me something that's true. How do I square these things? I think one thing that was very important was this realization that the point when it says, you know, when and God said, let there be light and, and there was light. One of the things it's saying is that the light by which we see the world um, comes from the way we talk about it. And, and that it's, it's pointing out to you that you should be aware of what language you're speaking and that there are different languages for characterizing the same world. Uh, and they don't necessarily talk about it in identical or even completely perfectly mutually translatable terms. Uh, so I can talk about the world, quantum fields, you know, electrons. I can talk about DNA. I can talk about lots of things. I can break the world into those pieces. Or I could take a different language and sort of draw the boundaries differently. There's this wonderful quotation from Ludwig Wittgenstein, the, the borders of my language are the borders of my world, right? And, and I think it's, it's very appropriate to this discussion. He was very Judaic in his thinking, although I think he was, I believe that the child of converted Jews, um, uh, but in any case, um, the, the, the point is when we're reading about the six days or the six plus one days of creation, the Torah is showing us how we should talk about the world as the first pass, you know, when we're when we're on the mission to accomplish what it's trying to teach us how to accomplish. If you take its goal for granted, that it's trying to teach us how to be of the Hashem, to serve Hakadosh Baruch Hu, to keep His laws and and to do, you know tzedakah mishpat, like justice and righteousness in the world and all of that, you don't start with electrons and, and DNA. You start with light and dark and and sea and land and men and women and fish and birds and like th th that's the fundamental vocabulary on which everything else is built. Uh, so you can make that your fundamental vocabulary. You can also make those other things your fundamental vocabulary. You'll get different languages and different ways of characterizing the world, but the Torah prefers a way of talking about the world as its starting point. Um, and, and that's a point that it's making. So long story short, um, or at least not longer, <laughs> for which I apologize, um, I, to answer the original question, I, I think the point is that when I came back to, all right, I'm a theoretical biophysicist. What have I, what have I learned now about what science is doing and how it understands the world? I think that was the first time it really clicked for me that biology and physics are different languages. That even though they're both science and nominally I'm speaking English when I do each of them, that I have to be aware that biology really has different words and taxonomies and vocabularies, et cetera, and standards than physics does. And once you realize that, that's the beginning of being able to start to think about how would I make physical theories that can explain lifelikeness to me because you, you don't make the mistake of wanting physics to tell you what is alive and what isn't. So I, I do think that where my scientific career has ended up leading certainly came from a kind of philosophical clarity that I'm not sure I would have gotten if I hadn't really been digging deep into the Torah and trying to make sense of it. And, and you know, and, and, and thinking about these questions of, of, light and dark and, and the origins of of uh of Breshit and 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 how we read it and it's and it's such a, it's you know the poetry is wonderful and it and it's trying to teach us something and, and the way that I tend to look at it and and 
interesting, you know, I'm thinking about it now reading your book, which is a little bit different, which is, um, it's not originally what the words meant, but, but Erev often connotes an idea of, of randomness, like an Erev Rav and mm. Boker is connected to the, to the word of Levaker of distinguishing. And so, um, so each day is by Erev, by Voker, which is there was chaos and then there was order, but mm. the way the universe normally works is from order to chaos. Um, and so each day is the way that we can move from a level of chaos into a level of order. And the only way we do that is by investing energy in the system. And by and that's something that we've got to consciously do. And so thinking about that as a responsibility of a, nor- a normative responsibility of how do we create more, more peace and justice, because there are a lot more ways for the world to go wrong than it is for it to go right. And, and you talk about this also in, in, in the book also, you know, how, you know, what, what can we know and what can't we know from, from all the different levels of complexity and understanding? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting way of reading it. Um, and, and I, I think also the, a wonderful thing about, Torah that is, I think, hard for people to relate to coming from other more modern kind of disciplines is how much it can be that its truth is in part that it means, you know, 70 at least different things, um, and and that you could pack that all into very dense real estate, that you can have like a few words that you could read in, in a lot of different ways, and, and that in order to express all of that, there's a way of doing that which has narrative demands, um, and, and so then you end up telling it a certain way, but then I think part of what it, it always is kind of there still trying to remind you of is make sure you know how you're reading this and then what you're trying to get out of it. Because you know, the, when, when the Torah says that God did something, that those Baruch who did something, uh, we, we should not presume to know what the picture of that looks like. We're not even allowed to make pictures of it, right? So uh, it, it's not a cartoon and it's not something simple. So when it says that Hashem made the world in six days plus one, um, we should, we, we could just as easily take from that, well, making a world sounds like something that takes a really, really long time. So maybe um, what I should learn from this is that if the Torah is gonna tell me that Hashem did something, that I should be very careful not to assume I understand from the plain meaning of the text what the timing of all of that looked like, right? right. Maybe, maybe it's actually gonna talk about events in, in, a, in a way that seems out of order or where some things that, you know, are talked about very briefly really took a long time. Um, and if you take that principle out into the rest of the Torah, a lot of other things start to make sense that way, right? Because, and, and, and even you see sometimes the same events described more than once um, where there's different levels of emphasis on the direct role of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like in the, in the case of Makat Bechorot, the, the striking of the firstborn in Egypt. The text essentially tells that twice, and in one case, it's like Hashem came and did it, and in another case, there's this kind of referring to the idea of a mashchit, like a slayer who's going around, and, and whether that's a disease or whether it's an angry mob or who knows what, but you, you, have, you have such a sense, if you're willing to uh, you know, be open to it, that really the peculiar way in which, let's say, the beginning of, of Bereshit or Genesis is not lining up with what you think the science is telling you, you could just as easily learn from that, that it's trying to teach you how to see the hand of Hashem in the world, and that in order to do that, it's going to have to kind of bend your mind into a lot of strange shapes um, and, and, and talk about the events of the world in ways that don't match up with the way that other languages talk about it in. Yeah, and I think this is a wonderful way to be able to to draw towards a close because tonight we're going to be lighting uh, the sixth night of, of Hanukkah to be able to light our, our Hanukkiah 
and uh, and to be able to bring a little bit more light into this world, which which we have to be able to do and to be able to experience God bringing light coming in, God's light coming in through us and, and being able to take agency here and to also be thinking about how every life is on fire and, and your book, uh, which I highly recommend a little plug for, for your book. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a fascinating book that not looks not only at the origins of the universe and the origins of life. It's also a wonderful treatise about the interplay of science and religion. So Jeremy, I want to thank you for taking the time here this afternoon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sacred Science, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Jeremy England. You can find him on Twitter at LifeLikePhysics. And if you want to learn more about the ideas from this conversation, then pick up his book, Every Life is on Fire. How Thermodynamics Explains the Origins of Living Things. Our guest on our next episode will be Rabbi Rachel Jackson, a former biochemist who now leads a synagogue in rural North Carolina. I've been your host, Rabbi Jeff Middleman. Sacred Science is a production of Sinai and Synapses and is part of the network of shows hosted at Jewish Live. And you can join us every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern at jewishlive.org sacredscience to be part of the conversation. Sacred Science is produced by Jeff Middleman and edited by Rachel Pincus. And to find all of our previous episodes and guests, you can find us at sinaiandsynapses.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're interested in more conversations about religion and science, including articles, blog posts, and upcoming events, you can follow us on Twitter at Sinai Synapses or me at Rabbi Middleman. Thank you for joining us, and Kol Tuv, all good things.